everyone, and welcome to season two of the Career Navigators podcast, where we bring you even more stories of academics navigating their careers outside of academia. In the coming episodes, we get to know some well-traveled navigators and their sometimes unexpected journeys. You can find our episodes on every major podcast platform or on anchor.fm. Please connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at CareerNVIGators for more information and updates. All links will be in the show notes. I am your host, Nikki van Teilingen-Bakker, now with an added PhD. Together, we can set our compass for a career outside of academia, so let's get into it. Today, I'm joined by Rebecca Thompson, who managed to combine her passion for teaching with her passion for translation in her current job as a training manager at MRSIS. Before that, she worked as a lecturer at the University of Texas, and she shares how professional and personal choices made her pivot away from academia, in this case, to become a translator for the FBI. So let's get into it. Enjoy. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm really excited to hear about your your experience because uh, there are some pretty interesting names in, let's say, companies or instances that you've worked for. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to hear about those. To start off, could you give us a little bit of background on your, your academic experience? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here and to be able to talk about my experience. Um, Just because I know that there are other people who have similar experiences. And um, anyway, I'm I'm excited to to share. Um, So my academic background, uh, my undergrad was in Spanish and Latin American studies. Um, and I chose that just because that was something that I was passionate about, that I, that I loved. I had volunteered in Peru, in Latin America, and um, uh, I decided that I wanted to do something with something related to Latin America, to Spanish in my career. I didn't know what, I didn't think I wanted to teach. Um, but when I graduated from undergrad, I went um, to Venezuela and I taught for a few years and I absolutely loved it. So I realized that my passion was teaching um, and I taught for a few years, uh, high school and secondary level. Um, I realized that that wasn't exactly the direction that I wanted to go. I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to... Um, have higher level students. So I decided to um, work towards a PhD in um, Hispanic literature because I told myself I love books, I love teaching. So there we go. That's that's the direction that I want to go. I didn't really know much about graduate school. I didn't really know much about um, really anything as far as doing research or anything like that uh, when I started. Um, So I had a pretty big learning curve. Um, I started my master's at the University of Texas in 2006. Um, I finished my master's in 2008 and then started my PhD in 2009, finished my PhD in 2012. Um, And throughout the process, I realized that I was really passionate also about, as far as research, um, uh, I I love narrative. Um, I really wanted to focus on Peru, so so I found that 
um, looking at marginalized cultures, how they manage their identities through literature, how they transform their identities through literature, especially with um, the Quechua-speaking cultures. So Quechua is the indigenous language in Peru. Um, so I found that really fascinating. Um, and it also spoke to the, the side of me that likes to learn languages. So um, not that I am fluent in Quechua at all, especially not now, um, but I, I do have some knowledge, enough knowledge to be able to, to read literature that incorporates Quechua. Um, so that's what I ended up writing my dissertation about, about marginalized identities, um, both Quechua speaking and female narrative writers. And throughout that process, the focus was to become a professor. Number one focus, my only focus, was I will be a professor. I did research, I presented at conferences, I wrote articles, everything was focused on becoming a professor. And I would say that that in itself, I, I was just a little too too closed in, in my perspective and giving myself options. So I did. I, um, I went on the job market, uh, went to the MLA conference, the Modern Language Association conference, and, and did everything that you're supposed to do, um, everything that my advisor coached me to do, and, um, and I got a tenure track job. And I was super excited. I was one of the very few in 2012. Um, it was a really difficult time. And, and as I understand, it still is a pretty difficult time for uh, humanities, PhDs to find tenure track jobs. I was super excited. It was at a small liberal arts university in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. And, um, I, I was ready to go and I went and, um, it wasn't, what I expected um, after all of that work and all of um, you know all of the the years of that I that I put into getting to this goal that I was one hundred percent I knew this was what I wanted to do when I got there um, I realized it wasn't to make a long story short and I'm sure you'll ask me about the the details more details but. Um, I wasn't happy, and I think that my university realized that as well. They changed my contract so that they told me after two years I would have one more year, and then that would be, you know, they would they would wish me well and want me to move on. And that was a, a really big hit for me because it was my entire identity. It was everything that I had worked for, everything that I had planned, and I, I was in shock, and I didn't know what to do. Um, but in hindsight, I think it was also a nice kick in the butt to get out of a job that I wasn't happy with. Um, so uh, from there, I was offered a position as a lecturer back at my alma mater at of Texas, and I was happy to go back. I was very excited to be able to teach at a research university and um, teaching great students and being in a place that I knew I was you know, comfortable and accepted. It was great, 
until I realized that financially it just wasn't going to work. It wasn't as a lecturer as challenged as I was, intellectually challenged as I was when I was a professor because I wasn't teaching higher level classes, I was teaching grammar classes. Um, so I started to play with the idea of leaving academia completely and um, started applying to different jobs. I really had no idea where to go, uh, where to look. Um, the search terms to use when I was searching for jobs, I, I didn't know who to talk to. It was all so new to me because I hadn't planned on going that direction. Uh, so I was starting from scratch, and um, I got an email about um, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation that was um, hiring linguists. And I said, oh, well, that's great. I can do that. I can do languages. I'm great at writing and editing and, and details. So I started going through the process, and taking the tests and going through each step, and um, I was hired about 18 months after the beginning of the process, and I also was super excited. I thought, this is amazing. This is like a movie. This is, this is something. Uh, I, I feel like I'm on line order SVU, and I'm going to be in a van and like listening to phone calls, and, and I, I was. I was listening to phone calls, but... Um, it was pretty monotonous. Um, it was, there was also kind of a um, disconnect between the translations that I was doing and the actual cases. So I would listen to these terrible people all day long and translate what they were saying and then hand off my case to an agent and never hear what happened. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. Um, anyway, it got to the point about after a year that I decided that that was not for me. Um, and I started really soul searching and thinking, what is it that I love? What is it that I really want to do? But I started, why did I start this whole, um, this whole trajectory? And my answer was, as I mentioned to you before, teaching. I love teaching. So I started looking at jobs where I could teach. And um, it, it kind of dawned on me that corporate training is another version of teaching, but on a much more financially stable level. I should say. Um, so that's where I started looking. And I got a job at a construction company as a training coordinator. And um, it, was a, it was a great job. I got to work with um, the guys out in the field. And I would visit um, each of the job sites and, and work with them teaching English. I also taught Spanish inside the, the office. And then I also taught you know, how to use technology, the iPads that they were using to read plans and all of that. Um, but the company itself wasn't super stable, and I couldn't see myself continuing on there. So uh, once again, and I feel like I, I started to doubt myself because it was like one thing after another, after another, after another. Um, and so once again, I uh, 
started looking for jobs. But at least I knew at this time which direction I wanted to go, what I was really passionate about. Um, so I started looking for more training jobs, teaching jobs. And um, I found my current position as a training manager for a, um, a, a digital uh, for basically a, a software company that <clears throat> that provides um, our clients with a way to um, to for digital communication, email, SMS, um, pop-ups on websites, etc. I didn't know anything about tech before I interviewed for the job. I did a lot of research before I interviewed for the job. And um, my selling point to them was exactly what I had found as I went through this path was, I know that I am an excellent teacher. I know that I can teach. And um, that's what they were looking for. So um, when I started, I had a big learning curve as well. I learned a lot within the company. Um, but I'm really grateful to have found a company that values my skills that I have and that sees that I can grow and learn um, what they need me to learn. Um, plus, I get to teach our clients uh, every day, all the time, all different clients all throughout um, North and South America. So, um, so it's it's been a, it's been a long path. Um, it's been a like I said, I, I doubted myself a lot. I had to kind of reinvent myself a lot um, throughout the process. I feel like I've finally gotten there. And no, I don't do research now. I'm not the same type of research that I did when I was in academia. But surprisingly, I don't miss it. Um, I think the reason why I went into academia in the first place was to be able to teach and to challenge myself and to have really interesting students, adult learners, and that's where I've gotten that that was a very a very long story short <laughs> there there was a there was a, a a lot to unpack there um i was i was writing furiously along with all the questions that popped up into my mind but it's very fascinating as i said there are some interesting names and interesting companies and yeah you took a took a winding road so i would like to dig into some some of these topics um one initial thing going all the way back in time back in academia if you were if you hadn't become a lecturer at that point in time like what are some of the common career paths looking back at it now common career paths that humanities phd's could look at when they finish a, a phd in in any topic whether that's linguistics or humanities is very broad i know that it's difficult Sure. Um, as far as my the, the options that I looked at at that point um, and the options that I dabbled in, because I did do a lot of um, kind of contract work, um, academic publishing is a big one, um, especially these online type um, like Babbel and um, Duolingo those type of language learning apps where they're always looking for experts in specific languages, especially as far as linguistics, but not necessarily um, uh, just linguistics. 
I also looked at um, working in education um, through technology companies, so Apple, um, like education representatives, or even textbook um, reps, knowing and selling textbooks. Um, I think that kind of there's a crossover with that now because they're not selling as many textbooks, they're selling more online apps and, and um, that type of, of material. Those were two of the main ones. Um, as I mentioned before, there wasn't a whole lot of talk either with my peers or with my, um, with my supervisors in graduate school about other options because everything was very focused on going into academia on the tenure track um, option. That was, that was really, I think most people, if they weren't considering that, they were considering working in elementary or secondary education, maybe even going into, yeah, principal, vice principal, going, going that direction. Yeah, I think it's, I still, as, as you can tell, I'm still kind of, I don't know. I think when I, when I was searching, I didn't know. And I still, there's, I, I don't have a lot of answers to that question. I think that's fine. I think what I learned from from making this podcast and, and what people who listen to the podcast maybe have also noticed is that there's usually not one straight path. Like the idea of a career that is traditionally you study and then you find a job and maybe you progress in a company or within the same the same position. It's just not the case anymore. Most people have a very windy road and and um, I want to get into that later, kind of this this sort of decision-making. How do you realize? Because I think many people are probably unhappy in their job or their position, but they don't really know why, or maybe they're comfortable enough that that there's no incentive to change. But it's it's something really important for people to notice. But one thing I wanted to ask you is that you kind of mentioned that your your supervisor or your peers in academia weren't necessarily very approachable or didn't necessarily have any answers for you. Did that change over time? Did you find maybe a mentor or mentors who could guide you more or was it all intrinsic motivation that, that got you somewhere, let's say, outside of academia? That's a great question. Um, as far as my supervisors, no. I think over time I moved farther and farther away from them as far as asking for their help, as far as um, kind of connecting with them because I realized that their only experience was the experience that didn't work for me, was the tenure track experience, becoming tenured, staying at a university. And they didn't have any other insights into into anything else because that wasn't that wasn't their reality. So I started depending more on my peers, uh, other people that had graduated around the same time that I did, because not everybody got that that tenure track position that um, that we were all hoping for. So. As their careers started to develop, the people that did go out of academia, I started to connect with them and ask them, what did you do? How did you do it? Where are you working? What is, 
what does that job description mean? I don't understand, you know, all of my my vocabulary was academic vocabulary. So I didn't even realize, I didn't, I didn't know what a, what the different levels um, in corporate jobs are and how those worked and what the, what the nomenclature was. So it, it was my peers that, that really made a big difference in this. Um, even, even people that I didn't necessarily know that were, you know, second or third level connections. And, and I'm, I'm not the, the, the type of person to actively network, but I'll say, like, that is, that saved me. Um, it really helped clarify so many things. And I realized that I started asking, there were answers out there. I'm not the first person that's done this at all. There's so many other people that have done it. So um, I just needed to, to start asking. And then how, how did you go about reaching out to people? Did you cold email them? Were there any platforms that you might have been using at that point in time or throughout your, your career? Um, LinkedIn, 100%. That's, that's where I started. Um, because And that was actually a recommendation from a friend and a peer of mine that graduated uh, the same year or a year after I did. Uh, she told me, she said, why don't you have a LinkedIn profile yet? I feel like in academia, uh, LinkedIn is not as as popular as needed, maybe. Um, but I joined LinkedIn and, and I started realizing that I really had um, there's some powerful ways to connect with people there. Then I would also, you know, research specific positions that I was interested in, find those people, write to them, reach out, ask for informational interviews, even if not using that term, but just asking for a few minutes of their time and if they can explain what they do. And surprisingly, most people are happy to help. There, there are some people that never responded, but I think in general, it's not a secret. The things that they do in their jobs and the, the types of positions there are, are not secret. They're, they're actually really happy to share them with you. Yeah, that's what I noticed as well, is that generally, even if you, let's say, reach out to 10 people and five of them respond, most of the times they're super happy to talk anyway. And then, you know, you're golden because you already have five more people that you get information from. So it's it's really a, a matter of like getting over your fear and just do it because in the end, they're also just people and maybe... They just overlooked your message and that was it. It's not like, ugh, who is this person? <laughs> Why are they contacting me? Like most people won't won't actually be like that. So it really doesn't matter. It's just a matter of getting over it and, and really just starting to ask. So then I was I was wondering, as I said before, you mentioned quite a couple of times that you were in the job and then at some point you felt like, oh, this is not for me. And I know that it's maybe a difficult question to answer. Like, what are your tips, let's say, for recognizing that you're not happy in your job and then kind of deciding what to do about it? Since you seem to be somewhat experienced in, <laughs> in this process. Um, I think somewhat experienced is an understatement. <laughs> um, I think it's a great question. The biggest thing for me when I was working as a professor um, was work-life balance. I had no work-life balance. 
I was working from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to sleep every single day. And my health was suffering. My social relationships were suffering if they existed. Um, and I was, my, the way that I was relaxing was, oh, I'll have a glass of wine with dinner. Oh, I'll have a glass of wine when I, um, when I am grading papers. Oh, you know, I deserve, I deserve a glass of wine now. And, and that, um, as far as being healthy was, I realized that was not healthy. I didn't have time to exercise. I was single and couldn't imagine meeting someone whose lifestyle would, would mesh with mine. I couldn't imagine having kids and uh, how people did it. I would always look at my, my female colleagues who had kids and go, how do they do it? How do they have time? All of that, along with the pressure to publish, along with the pressure to create amazing classes and, and teach these you know, great classes. And then also, you know, the, the reason why I joined academia so many years back was because I, I loved reading and the, the reading that I was doing was not enjoyable anymore. I dreaded it. I didn't want to read. And, you know, reading was how much can I read? How much can I, you know, process and get out into an article. So all of that together, I realized, was the reason for me why it, it wasn't working. And I would say on a lesser level with the other positions, it was similar. However, with the other positions, I think, um, like with the FBI, for example, well, with, I would say with... Um, being a lecturer at University of Texas, um, it was financial. I, I realized that, that I didn't, I wouldn't be able to continue on with my life making the amount that a lecturer makes unless I had a second job. And that was also when I started thinking about um, becoming a mom. And I still didn't have a partner, but I said, you know, I'm going to become a single mom by choice. Um, which was a, a huge step and um, something that I realized I said, I'm getting older. I'm at that point, I was 35 when I decided um, to become a single mom by choice. And I said, Okay, I'm going to start the process. Strangely enough, as I started the process, started looking for careers that were financially stable. I found the career that was financially stable, and I also met a partner who was you know, on board for the whole family thing. So um, I think it's kind of what you set up for yourself, too. You know, um, I decided that was the direction that I wanted to go. And that's not everybody's direction, but it made more sense for me. It works for me. Yeah, I think I think it does. It's all about priorities and and what you want to get out of it, right? One slightly critical question, maybe, is: Would you do you think you would have stayed in academia or as a lecturer if if your salary had been higher? I think I, I, I think I would have stayed if they hadn't asked me to leave. I think even with the same salary, I don't think that I would have had the motivation to change my life that much 
without someone, without a, a kick in that direction. I really don't. It takes so much courage to make the decision on your own. It's so difficult. It's, like I said, I lost my identity as a, as an academic, as a professor, and um, I wouldn't have left on my own, I don't think. Um, maybe. I like to think, you know, of course you like to think of yourself as like a stronger, you know, um, uh, this person that, of course, I'm going to do exactly what my heart tells me to do, but in, in the reality of it, no, I think I would have stayed. I think I would have trudged through everything and uh, probably switched universities, continued to make about the same amount of money, and um, probably still be single and um, not have the two beautiful kids that I have and have a very different life, honestly. Uh, I don't know. I, I, who's to say it would be a better life or, or not, but um, it would be different for sure. Right. And then going into that, do you think that having stayed in academia, again, taking out maybe the financial aspect of it, do you think it would have been more difficult to to realize your plans of, of having a family than it was later on being outside of academia uh, or as it is now? Yes, absolutely. It would have been it would have been very different and most likely much more difficult. My current position is so supportive of families. Also, as far as even just maternity leave, I know you have a lot of listeners in Europe, but here in the United States, our maternity leave is not nearly as great as y'all's um, most, most European countries' maternity leave. So um, in universities, a lot of times there isn't a maternity leave. It's just what you can work out with the university. If you can take a sabbatical, take a semester off, um, kind of, it it would have been much more difficult. I, I don't I don't know if I would have I don't know if I would have gone that route. I think it's a it's a big thing for most for most people who are in in that position, or even earlier on during a PhD or a postdoc, no matter what field you're in. It's just really hard to reconcile both the financial situation as well as the, you know, the work-life balance, work and family and everything that comes with it. I'm glad that you made it. <laughs> I mean, I started graduate school when I was in my 20s, but I graduated when I was 30. And then I started, you know, realizing, you know, I'm getting older. And I think a lot of women if they stay in academia and have having children much later, or they do it when they're still in grad school. Um, and like you say, either way, um, there's, there's a different challenge to it. Yeah. Right. I think no matter what it's surely it must be difficult to have a child. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm not planning for it yet. So um, I cannot necessarily relate that much, but hopefully, hopefully some of the listeners can. And then I would like to go a little bit into, let's say, your job search or two different aspects to it. One of them is really like the kind of jobs you had, but also positions you mentioned that maybe someone 
uh, with your background could look at. Do you think having a PhD specifically is an advantage here or do you think it's not really necessary as much? I I really think that the skills that I got through my PhD, they're soft skills. They're not um, you know, specific things that I can say, I can do A, B, and C as far as computer programming or you know whatever, especially with a humanities PhD. Um, what we learn are soft skills. And what I learned was how to research, how to teach, how to write, how to present my research. And those skills, I don't think that I would have learned in another area um, had I not done a PhD. So I think absolutely the skills that you get going through a doctoral program are very valuable in these positions. Now, do you need the PhD after your name for these positions? No. But it can be helpful, especially if you have employers that recognize that you have those skills from the PhD. The issue is most employers, there's a disconnect between corporate and academia and they don't, it's kind of like both sides are a mystery to the other side. They don't really realize what a humanities PhD does or the skills that a humanities PhD might have. And that's where during the job search, it's our jobs as job searchers to show them what it is that we can do. And that sometimes translating to corporate vocabulary is the most difficult part right because then i was going to ask you like what are kind of your tips and tricks for selling your skills uh in the best way possible during during an application let's say or maybe even an interview that's a good question um mine <laughs> was trial and error <laughs> um i i started kind of i definitely changed my cv my 12 page cv to uh it started out as a two-page resume and then i finally got down to a one-page resume i think through each position that i was looking through looking for each job search that i was going through I fine-tuned more and more. I started to realize more and more what what companies were looking for. And I'm happy to share my current resume for anyone who's, who's looking for a job, especially, you know, PhD, um, humanities PhDs who are looking for a job outside of academia. Um, because it ended up as a one-page resume and with keywords. I, I used kind of a... Um, a digital-looking format, and I used keywords, tags. I got a lot of feedback from other people about it uh, because I realized that my own perspective coming from academia was not the perspective that was going to... If I if I had done it myself, I would have stuck with that 12-page resume or that 12-page CV because everything on there was important. Um, so getting feedback from other people was was key. And getting feedback from employers as well, the ones that I didn't get the interview, I would ask them, what was it 
know, a lot of times they didn't respond, but sometimes they did. And they would tell me, you know, or after an interview, if I didn't get the job, I would ask them for feedback. I wish there was a better answer uh, for the tips and tricks, but yeah, I think it's really trial and error and kind of fine tuning little by little and realizing, kind of learning what employers are looking for. Also, making connections within the company, networking uh, was super helpful um, as far as getting an interview. Oh yes. Now I was I was kind of interested uh, to hear a little bit more about your maybe your job, but also generally what it's like to apply for and work for the uh, for the FBI. Because I'm I'm sure that there are multiple people who whom that sounds interesting too. Although I'm not quite sure what the regulations are. I'm I'm sure there's some something specific for perhaps like uh, American citizens. Um, or something along those lines, but still, it would be interesting to hear. Sure. Uh, let me see if I remember all of the, the process. But yes, I believe that you do have to be a U.S. citizen to be able to apply for the position. Um, you also have to have a very clean background, no arrest, no um, drugs, uh, DWIs, yeah, that type of, um, yeah, those type of things. So they they tell you that upfront um, as you start the process, and it is a long process. So the, if I remember correctly, the first thing that you do is a written test, and for your written test, you um, as a as a linguist. So the linguist is, is what they call those who do the translations and also those who listen to the, the wires, um, the phone calls, things like that. Um, so the first thing that you do is take a written test in the language that you want to be a linguist for and also in your native language if you'd like to be, be able to translate uh, to and from that language. And the <clears throat> there's two levels of passing, um, there's a lower level, which means that you do more summary type um, translations. And then the higher level means that you are also able to do more verbatim translations. So um, once you pass the written test, then I... I don't remember which goes first. I don't know if they do the background check after the written test. No, I think they do the, the speaking test. Um, so the speaking test, you it's um, in the language that you're testing to be a linguist for. And if you're testing for various languages, then you're doing this for, uh, you're doing each test separately. Um, and so you do a speaking test. And then if you pass both of those, then they'll tell you what level of linguist that you're going to become. And then you start the background check. And the background check is a super, it starts out with a super long questionnaire that you fill out about your entire life and all of the people that you've ever had contact with and dated and especially people outside of the United States and 
um, they really want to make sure that um, that your uh, your fit to be to be seeing all of this top top secret information. Um, we also check into your debts to make sure that you're not going to be bribed by anyone. Um, all of all of those type of things. And um, so once they finish the background check. Then they interview a few of your um, family members or friends uh, in person. And um, I think they have an interview as well. And then they do a um, polygraph test. And then once all of that is finished, and keep in mind that this is the government, so everything is very slow. It's not like one week to the next week to the next week. It's like... Six months, six months, six months. It took 18 months from the beginning of the process to the end when they finally called me and said, are you ready to start? So um, so I did um, about 18 months afterwards. They called me and, and said, you're cleared. You're ready to start. And they hire as contractors. And then once you are a contractor, then if a full-time position becomes available, then you can apply internally. So that's something that I didn't know until I started going through the process. Um, so there's not a whole lot of, um, for example, Spanish linguist positions um, available because there are a lot of people who can do that. Um, but if you speak a not so common language, maybe Portuguese or Quechua or you know one of the, the other languages that I dabble in, but I'm definitely not at the level to be a linguist, um, then if you can pass those tests, then you're much more hireable as far as a full-time. Right. That's that's what I wanted to clarify. So initially, you tried you tried for Spanish, Portuguese, and Quechua. I don't know how how useful Quechua is in in the criminal circuit <laughs> circuit as such. There is a Quechua test, so um, they do have a need, I suppose. Um, I tested only for Spanish because my level of Portuguese and my level of Quechua I knew was not um, the level that I needed to be. I was actually surprised as a non-native speaker of Spanish um, that I did become a full linguist. Um, whereas some of the native speakers only became the lower level of the, I forget what they, what they call it, but um, the ones who do the summary. So it's, I think a lot of it has to do with the level of Spanish. Maybe my PhD helped me out with that. Uh, reading a lot helps my vocabulary, although I tell you what, once um once I started, this was another position that once I started, I realized that the vocabulary that I knew as an academic uh, Spanish speaker was not the vocabulary that I was using day to day. So that was another position where um, I learned to learn quickly through my PhD and it helped me out. Um, so I was able to kind of process that new vocabulary and use context clues. Some of it was pretty fun. Some of it was just weird. Um, and 
you know, some of these um, criminals, these are really sophisticated kind of, um, uh, they make up their own languages, but they're super sophisticated, um, where they make up their own kind of slang words. And um, that part was fascinating to me. I loved that. I can only imagine. I'm just picturing this, you know, like pure academic, let's say semi-innocent person who's sitting there and hearing all of these things, probably also in, you know, accents and dialects that you're not used to. Um, I I think that that's a feeling that any academic has as soon as they leave academia and go, let's say, in quotation marks, into the real world (laughs) and and having to adapt on how to apply um, their academic knowledge, especially in this case. I can just imagine like, you know, these hardened criminals using their Spanish in very creative ways. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I really was a great metaphor for leaving academia and you go, oh man, this is, this is a very different world. This is not what I studied for. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And and then in in terms of let's say working for the FBI or I would assume most of these sort of governmental organizations is it is it possible apart from going from being a contractor to having a permanent contract is it also possible to sort of progress through the organization or or is there a point that you would really kind of get stuck and have to move on anyway? That's a great question, and that was something that. Um, that I was really interested in when I was going through this process of applying to become a linguist. And as a contractor, um, the options that I had to kind of do different jobs really depended on um, the type of experience that I have. So you can start out with local, lower level type translations, and then you can move up to even go international, which I didn't know that the FBI did more international things, but but they do. Um, so there were a lot of international jobs that I um, asked to go on that they said, no, you don't have the experience. You need to do more local jobs first before you can fly around internationally and, and do these, these fancier jobs. Um, which makes sense. I, I understand that. Um, also, as far as um, live uh, simultaneous or consecutive translation um, or interpreting, I should say, those go to the more experienced um, translators. So that, as far as the type of jobs that you get once you're in the position, also, um, I was really interested in the teaching aspect. Um, and as a contractor, you're not allowed to be a, a teacher within the FBI, a language teacher within the FBI. So you have to be a, um, have a full-time position there um, to be able to do that. And some other types of, of jobs um, related to language. Uh, they want you to be a full-time employee there, which is understandable, Um, but it's also frustrating when you say, you know what, I have the the qualifications to do this. I I kept telling them, I have have so many years of experience as a teacher. Like, you 
he would be happy to have me as a teacher. Um, but for them, a lot of it was um, checking the boxes. Are you a full employee? Do you have this many years experience? And if you don't, then you just don't. Yeah. I, I can imagine that at some point that also becomes a little bit frustrated because you you would you would think that any any company or any organization would try to make the most of every person that they hired. But um, yeah, and and one thing I'm going back to it is the government. There is a lot of bureaucracy. Um, things move very slowly, and that in hindsight was not the direction. That's not the way that I wanted my career to move. Um, I needed it to move faster. I had started um, my post-academia journey later, I guess I could say, and um, I wanted to move quickly. Um, I knew that I had a lot of experience and um, in working with the government, I was not going to move quickly. I wasn't going to move up the ladder quickly. Um, whereas working in tech, like I do now, um, I can. I can move up quickly and I have a lot of opportunity do so yeah I was gonna go there next so it seems like you definitely um again found that little aspect it's almost like um how do you say it like a puzzle and every time you have to find a piece and put it in the right place and then you can continue on um finding the next thing (laughs) yeah yes so then with your current job or what would I call it is it corporate trainer is that kind of the the job title that you that you would say yes um sure yeah my my technical job title is a training manager mm-hmm. um but i um i manage the training i also do the training so yeah you can say corporate trainer right so what what does that look like on a day-to-day basis like what are you up to what kind of people are you in contact with what are some of the skills that you use most let's say that that come in handy also looking back at your phd and maybe sure, other so. previous experience yeah um, so on a day-to-day basis, the majority of my day as a training manager, I spend training. Um, even before the pandemic, I was doing most of my training uh, virtually. Um, I was hired remote. Um, I'm sorry about that. Um, That's okay. Well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I, I, was, um, I was hired remote. My job is in or my office is, but I live in Austin, Texas. So um, it's about a two-hour playing time, if you can direct, two or two and a half hours. The reason why they were happy to hire me living in Austin is that Austin is very central as far as in the United States, and I can fly anywhere. I can go anywhere in North America. I can go anywhere in, in Latin America as well. Um, easier than someone from Indianapolis. Um, So on a day-to-day basis, like I said, I spend most of my day um, training virtually through Zoom. Um, We do one-on-one client trainings. Um, We also, so usually those are for clients who have um, just signed on or have bought a a new package. to their existing package, and they need to learn how to use it. Um, so I'm working with their marketing team, usually, um, to teach their team how to use um, this, this program that they've gotten. And um, we also do in-person trainings. 
every once in a while. So those are always exciting. Uh, we haven't done them lately because of the pandemic, but um, before the pandemic, we would, the company would say, you know what, we would rather a trainer come out to our office and we'll do a full day of training or we'll do two full days of training and they'll learn everything and then the trainer can, um, can go back home. So I did some of that and then we also do seminars, which is, um, there's a, a beginning seminar and an advanced seminar. Those are mixed. It's not just for one client. It's for whoever wants to sign up for them. Um, any of our clients who want to sign up for them. And then we also do webinars. Um, and webinars are usually on a specific topic um, that kind of will help marketers to um, fine-tune what they're doing or think differently about what they're doing. So with all of those different types of trainings, I'm either face-to-face um, -face with clients or I'm preparing or I'm working with the implementation consultant or the client success manager who's like the account manager um, to get more information about their accounts to really understand what a client is looking for so that I can um, make sure that the training is valuable to them. So um, that takes up most of my time. Uh, oh, and there's also a lot of um, learning about the products because it's constantly changing. So I do a lot of, um, I, I sit in on other webinars and sit in on other training sessions um, so that I can learn what are the new things that they have that they done with the products. And, um, process that, and then teach it. Um, so my research is not the type of research that I was doing before. My research now is researching the company, understanding how what we offer uh, can help that company, and um, you know, looking into strategy, looking into deliverability, you know, all of those pieces of the puzzle um, that work that's very interesting because the thought that comes into my mind now is that especially I would assume in tech companies or people who are very you know exact science based or companies that are very kind of based on those kinds of technologies it's interesting that that you ended up in a job like this and and I wonder about your experience on on how to process the information and be able to like efficiently you know, teach others about it because I think most scientists, like again, exact scientists, more like it, uh, or even biomedical scientists like myself. I think, to be very frank, like they maybe wouldn't trust someone else very easily to say, like, oh, okay, so you can explain the science or the technology um, as accurate as, let's say, an engineer would be able to do. Although the engineers obviously lacking other skills to effectively communicate but how do you find the balance in 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 this case yeah i think you hit the nail on the head um when you said that the engineer wouldn't have the skills to be able to or maybe but probably not um have the skills to be able to teach what they know to a different type of audience an engineer can speak to another engineer and they in the same language and they're able to communicate, they're able to. Um, I feel like a lot of times in a way, I'm a translator. 
Um, because what I'm doing is I'm listening to these very technical people explain something. I'm learning it. And then I'm translating it to a marketing team that every once in a while, there will be a technical person on the, on the marketing team. And they'll ask me questions. And then I will say, let's get a technical person on the phone because I don't know. <laughs> um, but the majority of the time, there are people who are, are marketing who are thinking about um, the audience and how to get their product marketed to that audience. Um, and they don't know the technical language. So I'm able to kind of take it from our team and present it in a way that they are, that my, our clients are understanding it. And um, I notice when we get the technical person on the on the call, sometimes um, they're usually way too technical. So I kind of, kind of sometimes end up translating on the fly and say, "Okay, so what they're saying is," or I'll say, "I'll ask the I'll say so." In other words, what you're saying is, I do it like this and do it like this and do this, and that. It's helpful for the client without kind of putting the client on the spot and saying, okay, well, you probably didn't understand. Yeah, I think um, that's one of the fun challenges of my job is that I get to kind of process this new language. It's new for me, too, and translate it and teach it to someone else. Right. So you're, you're combining your two passions or like, let's say two of your passions, uh, which is translation and, and I guess also teaching as, as we've heard throughout this, this interview. As strange as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't have ever picked this specific position to be able to do that. If you would have told me 10 years ago that this is where I would be, I would say, no, I don't think so. Um, but in the end, um, But do you think you would be able to get this position if you didn't have the teaching experience? So let's say you just did a PhD and you didn't do any of the, the lecturing or the teaching that you did in between your PhD and, and moving to the FBI? No, I don't think so. Um, I think really what they were looking for, from what I understood throughout the interview process, was someone who is an excellent teacher. Yeah. Um, and they even told me, you know, if we can't teach you how to teach, but we can teach you about our products. That's, we, we know how to do that, but we don't know, you know, we need someone who knows how to teach. We've had a really good talk and I just wanted to wrap up with the kind of classic question of, um, if you were to give your former academic self uh, some tips or some advice, like what would it be? I would tell my former academic self to be more open-minded about the possibilities that I have um, as far as careers. I would also tell my former academic self to um, talk to more people to network more, to um, really think about what I'm passionate about rather than a specific career goal. 
I probably wouldn't have listened to myself, but. (laughs) (laughs) I think regardless of anything throughout throughout this uh, interview that became very clear, like really trying to figure out what you're passionate about and, and always recalibrate. And, you know, one career is not the final career. You can do many different things um, and, and try to figure out what you, what you want, as long as you, you stay focused and you keep thinking about what it is that you really want. Okay. Well, in that case, um, I learned a lot and I'm, I'm glad we had this talk and I hope that everyone who's listening, um, Uh, feels the same about it if anyone wants to follow up or has any specific questions where where would they be able to find you or connect with you um they can connect with me through linkedin Uh, you can find me on linkedin where my awesome phd um on linkedin Uh, and you can also email me directly if you're interested i'm happy to um to share any specific experiences or, or answer any specific questions that people have. I'll do my best too. I'm not sure that I uh, can answer all the questions. Um, so everyone go check out her LinkedIn and, uh, and email address in the show notes and feel free to reach out with any specific questions that you might have. Yeah, thank you so much. It sounds like you, uh, you have a little one to attend to. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It's been great. That's it for this interview. Be sure to let us know what you think of the show through our social media channels at CareerNVIGators. And check the show notes for more information on the podcast and the guests. I would like to thank Johan Frieden for making our logo, Gustavo Cariso for editing, mixing and sound design. Don't forget to add a note when you connect with me or the guests on LinkedIn. And thank you all for listening. As always, see you later, navigators.